0: Hey, Annie, guess what? What? We just launched a business of biotech newsletter. Yeah? Yeah. I know what you're thinking. What am I thinking? We don't need another f- newsletter. Yeah, I might have been thinking that. Annie, I swear on my grandpa's grave, you're going to like this newsletter. That's a pretty bold swear, Matt. Uh, hear me out. It's monthly. Only once a month. It's ad-free. And it's modeled after the Business of Biotech podcast. It's got the same insight from the builders of biotech that you see in the podcast. So what's not to like? That actually sounds like it doesn't suck. Pretty high praise, Annie. Check it out. Bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Go there and sign up for this newsletter. You won't regret it. Nadim Ahmed signed on as president and CEO at Cullinan Oncology a little over a year ago. His first foray into clinical stage biotech after working his way through the ranks from clinical development at GSK to leadership of global hematology efforts at Celgene and Bristol-Myers Squibb over the course of the last 29 years. In the months since Ahmed joined Cullinan, the company has expanded its clinical programs from one to three, cemented its cash position in part by entering into a lucrative strategic collaboration with Taiho Pharmaceutical doubled its workforce and moved into a new headquarters in cambridge i'm matt pillar and on today's episode of the business of biotech we're going to get to know nadim we're going to learn a little bit about the moves he's made at Cullinan and the moves that he plans to make under his watch nadim welcome to the show
1: great to be with you matt thanks
0: it's great to have you thanks for joining us uh and as I said, uh, I want to learn a little bit about you before we get into some of the calling and discussion. I'm going to ask you to hit the rewind button and go way back. I don't want to date you. I don't want to say way, way back, but but back a ways, right, to your uh, your formative education years. And when I look at that, uh, I see that you hold a pharmacology. You, you hold pharmacology and IT degrees. Um, now, again, don't want to date you, but when you earn these degrees, from my purview, you earn these degrees at a time when that combination wasn't as maybe prevalent, cool, or necessary as it is today, right? Like the combination of pharmacology and IT, I think in today's day and age is uh is is rare and super sought after. There's a lot of value in in that in that combination. Uh you you were those degrees. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe maybe you just have amazing foresight and some <laughs> You know, 20 plus years ago, you thought, boy, if I combine these two, I'm gonna be uh gonna have a leg up, be ahead of the curve, right? Tell me about that though. When you were uh when you were working through those degrees, was it intentional? I mean, was was that combination an intentional one for you?
1: Um uh, yeah, so I, I always had an interest in both science and computing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, did a bit of programming at home and and stuff like that. And and I guess I would say I had an instinct that both computing data and analytics in the future would perhaps be more involved in uh, decision-making. Um, and so that kind of drew me in. Uh, now, of course, I didn't know we'd come up with things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, all that stuff. But but I did have an instinct that having both of those things would probably be advantageous for the future. So perhaps it was a bit more of, a, of an instinct combined with Kind of my natural interests i would say as well and funnily enough my first role in the industry was uh was in a role called clinical data management so you see the clinical and the data again right and so um th- that was my first role and it, it used both my science and my computing background and then from there my career kind of started out in uh in research and development uh with both clinical development and medical affairs and then i Transition more to the business side, working in global, U.S. and international commercial roles. And in terms of companies, um, I started out actually at Welcome, which was Burroughs Welcome in the U.S., mm. um, which then became Lexa Welcome, and then when it became GSK is when I actually came to the U.S. Um, and then from there went to Celgene, to BMS, and then ultimately ultimately to Cullinan Oncology most recently.
0: Yeah. It's uh, you know, on on paper, I look at it, uh it, you know, it's sort of a classic climb the ladder, right? Rise through the ranks story. Um, uh, starting out in in, in R D clinical development and, and working your way up into, you know, as you said, uh business management operations and eventually into the into the C suite. Um at what point I'm just curious about like, at, at what point on that uh on your career trajectory did it uh occur to you that perhaps you wanted to uh lead a a, a company of your own not just a a team or a group or an effort within you know a a big pharma environment but but lean a a therapeutic development effort all all into itself
1: sure yes so so i wasn't one of these people that had the burning ambition to be a ceo from from day one on the job um and i just i always approached um my work through um looking at it through a lens of learning opportunities i I really love to learn and uh, i think as i progressed i would often think now what's my next learning opportunity right so for example a big change for me was going from r d to the business side um and I, i remember i was in clinical development at the time and um back then at least and to some degree still now you know I wasn't a physician and you know to really progress in clinical development at that time you you really needed to be a physician and so I thought about okay what's my next learning opportunity going to be and I remember going to these project team meetings and seeing the business guys and I thought wow that looks quite interesting Uh, but I couldn't go straight from clinical development to to you know marketing or the commercial side so Medical affairs ended up being my stepping stone, if you like, uh, because you kind of get to work. Uh, it's more a medico-marketing type role, or the way it was then in in headquarters, um, and so that allowed me to kind of move more towards the uh, the business side of things. Um, but it also made me a better business person to have that scientific and and clinical background, and so I do have I still have that innate curiosity around science and pipeline. Um, And so as I moved to the, I guess, the commercial side, um, you know, including within GSK, and then to Celgene and, you know, Celgene was a time of rapid growth. And I think as my career progressed there, I then started to think seriously about, okay, you know, where can I take this? Um, And again, within the context of learning on the job, doing US roles, international roles, global roles, um, you know, uh, at Celgene, it really afforded me the opportunity to To take on a a C-suite role, and uh, you know, have a—I've always thought about where can I make an impact, and so I think that allowed me to make an impact uh, heading up that business, um, which I really enjoyed. And I think you know, once I did that, I thought, you know, um, I'm going to continue to look at these sorts of opportunities. Yeah,
0: yeah, and then the other—the other big transition that I'm curious about, you know, the the transition from. um, in, into the c-suite but then the, the, there's a big transition when you go from the comfort and I guess uh uh privilege uh, privilege I don't, privilege probably isn't the isn't the right word but the, the 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 comforts we'll leave it at that of uh of big Pharma to leading a, a clinical stage company like Colin and. so what was the inspiration there to make that move and how did you you know I'm looking for a little bit more than inspiration. what were you worried about like what what was the risk you know how did you kind of how did that kind of play out in uh in Nadim's head? when the opportunity arose
1: sure um you, you know when it comes to uh, to my career i've um i've always been somewhat of a risk taker and tend to kind of just jump into the unknown um it's partly how i'm wired um and i think for me it was you know i reflected on my time at Selgene. and there it was a much smaller organization when i joined in in 2010 and It was much more of a, I'd say, a a biotech culture, especially as a company experienced really rapid growth during the decade or so so that I was there. And I just, I really enjoyed that kind of unique entrepreneurial culture and also, you know, building out the company. You know, we were entering new new countries, new launches, new markets, building new functions. And I think that really kind of whet my appetite to get into a, uh, I would call it a more um, a more creative culture, driven by that kind of you know free spirit, seeking innovation, etc. And so, you know, it, it really also helped to drive my uh, thinking about my next career move after BMS. But it was probably those Celgene days that really gave me that exposure to much more of a biotech culture. So. Um, It wasn't it wasn't a a big move in terms of thinking what I wanted to do next uh, Mm -hmm. and entering biotech space here at Cullinan Oncology. So that was part part of my thinking. Um, And interestingly, although most of my career has been in larger pharma, um, there are many aspects of biotech that actually resonate with me probably more. You know, things like, as I described, the entrepreneurial spirit, um, that creative culture that can really drive um, innovation um, agility in decision making speed of execution is a big one for me um, and external rather than internal focus and so you know those were some of the things that were naturally occurring in the biotech space that really uh, resonate uh, really resonate uh, with me and so as as I thought about the next opportunity uh, coming back to your original question um, you know I wanted to be CEO of a biotech company and uh, and Oncology kind of met all the things that I was looking for in my next role, right? So things that were important for me were, um, you know, excellent science with a highly talented team. And Cullin Oncology checked that mark for me. I wanted to go to a clinical stage company rather than much earlier so that I could, you know, use my skills and experiences. Um, I really like the breadth and depth of a very diversified portfolio, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, highly differentiated molecules in in each of those, there was a potential first or best in class in each of the programs. When I did my own due diligence on the company, um, and then uh, at the time, and even more importantly now, given current market conditions, I, I saw a robust cash runway and knew that you know I'd have the resources to be able to advance uh, advance our pipeline. And so now, as I think my role as CEO of Cullen Oncology, I'm also really uh, Matt enjoying the opportunity of having full accountability from the early discovery phase all the way through to late stage development and regulatory approval which which is new to me actually going all the way further back and having responsibility um and another way I, I tend to describe it to my team is you know turning molecules into medicine uh, you know by taking excellent science and then turning it into something that's going to be really meaningful for patients um and it was an it was also an exciting opportunity to take a company uh, from an R&D organization to becoming, uh, you know, our ambition of becoming a fully integrated commercial stage biotech company. So Mm -hmm. all of those things resonate with me. But I would say that early experience at Celgene and that growth phase really gave me exposure to that kind of nimble biotech culture that, you know, that made it clear for me what my next move would be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, you answered a good part of my question, but you didn't answer all of it. You know, so you, you 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 you've told us you're the the fearless risk risk taker. That's part and parcel with who you are. But uh, what what was, uh, if any, if any that you're willing to admit? What what apprehensions did you have? Where where did you maybe feel um, less prepared?
1: Yeah, you know, look, there's um, I think there's an aspect of you know when you go from a very large organization when you're leading an organization of thousands of people, right? To go to a very small company um you don't necessarily have the resources that you're used to right and you actually yeah. have to roll your sleeves up yourself which has never scared me per se but i knew it was going to be a very different experience so there was that little bit of you know the unknown um yeah. but honestly i've just i've i've always enjoyed jumping into the unknown and uh, yeah. and, and so it wasn't a hard transition for me in fact the harder piece was convincing the board of Cullen and Oncology that I could go from a larger organization to a smaller organization. And they were fantastic about it. And uh, And I also think, again, that experience at Selju, when we started out much smaller than where we ended up to, did give me that sort of exposure to that kind of fast pace, yeah. very quick moving in- environment.
0: Yeah, it's not uncommon. I and mean, listeners, the uh, regular listeners of the Business of Biotech will, you know, pick up on the fact that I I interview lots and lots of, you know, big pharma execs who move into the leadership of of small pharma. You just mentioned the board. That's an interesting take. I I you know, it we don't have time today, but I'd like to dig into uh you know into that board mentality. I often think about and have never really dug into the employee mentality, you know, like when when Nadim Ahmed is named uh president and CEO of Colonel and Oncology, and they say, Who's this guy? Oh, he was uh, he was a he was a big shot at uh, at at BMS and GSK. You know, what the what the culture, I guess, shift for them is, you know, oh boy, here we go. You know, here's this guy's gonna come in here and instill a whole bunch of big pharma. Uh, policies and procedures in a, in our little company, you've not been that. Uh, from what I've read, what I've you know, I've I've, I've seen you speak. I've, I've I've read some of your stuff. Um, you, you've 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 not been that. You've been you've been agile, and I, 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 we'll get to we'll get to some of the why behind that later. But one example of that uh, that you've I guess um, nurtured at Colin and is this modality agnostic approach there, which is you know, as I said, it's indicative of of nimbleness and agility. Um, modality agnostic discovery process now <clears throat> the, the, there are i've I've had several conversations with execs about you know different different modality agnostic approaches, tech enabled, um you know, some roll up your sleeve and and try and you know fail until you succeed approaches. There are a lot of different ways to to go about that. I'm curious at calling in. Uh, what what that entails? Uh, you know, it's a big question. You're starting out with yeah. just this great big giant question. What what does modality agnostic mean to you, and how do you go about uh, that discovery process?
1: Yeah, so um, I would say our, our core is is the modality agnostic targeted oncology approach. And as you think about, one way I think about it is the is the biology of cancer. So so we know cancer is not a monolithic disease right it's over 100 different heterogeneous diseases with unique biology and treatment approaches it's caused by you know different genetic mutations in our cells and so you know complex processes that involve dysregulation of multiple pathways that cancer cells need to survive and then cancer cells get really clever at you know evading our immune system and and surviving and so the way we approach it is, um, you know, our discovery scientists, they really focus on what are the high impact cancer targets, potentially from a scientific perspective. Once we identify those targets, we then think about, okay, what's the best way to prosecute those targets. So in other words, we go target first and modality second, rather than the other way around. And so that makes sure that, you know, we're not reliant on, you know, a single platform or even a single product. Uh, And we also try to identify targets where we think they could work across different cancers or, you know, so-called pan-cancer approach. But we're really led and driven, Matt, by the target first and then the vehicle that gets you there. So target first, modality second. And it's... It's it's a fairly simplistic approach, but it makes us quite differentiated in in uh, in where we uh, we operate, and and you know the result is our pipeline. If you look at our pipeline today, it's a um, it's a range of you know biologics, small molecules. We've got fusion proteins, uh, simple monoclonal antibodies, T cell engagers, um, and so that's how we kind of that's our core strategy is to take this approach that really focuses on on the targets first the other thing I think our, our team does very well is we um we define pretty high go no go hurdles pretty early on in the discovery process mm-hmm. so we front load as much scientific experiment uh, experimentation as possible as we can early into our programs so that we make sure that we're only advancing the most uh, promising programs into the clinic as it were um, and You know, we do this, what we call through the so-called thriller or killer experiments, right? So if you get the killer result, meaning you're hitting the no-go criteria, our guys are really good at just shutting everything down. And moving on to the next thing Uh, you know since you asked my experience in larger organizations i can tell you i've been organizations where we think we've killed something and two years later there's still a team working on it uh whereas (laughs) yeah my guys are really ruthless and if we get the opposite result the thriller result then we double down our investment on that and say look how can we move quicker get it to the clinic what are the other experiments that that we need to do Uh, and so by Advancing only the most promising assets into the clinic. You know, we really have this focus on either first-in-class or best-in-class uh, programs, uh, which ultimately will help us to deliver on our mission to create new standards of care for patients of cancer. Yeah,
0: I, I want to dig uh, a little bit deeper. Uh, you know, r- rewind real quick to to that discovery process. Uh, what what is that machine? To the extent that you can describe it to us, what is what is that machine or approach? Look like because it occurs to me, especially you know, as, as your modality agnostic, you know, the 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 process of discovery, uh, discovering targets, discovering uh, what modalities address those targets best across small malls and mAbs and buy and try specific antibodies is going to be is going to be different, right? I'm 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 assuming. I mean, t- you tell me, like, what is that sort of the, the what, what what is the mechanic of that uh, d- earlier discovery phase?
1: Yeah, so we, um, our, our scientists spend a lot of time thinking about, um, I, I guess, what we call innovation ideation, right? So, for example, um, searching the literature, using our network to say, okay, that looks interesting over there, and so does that. And then in the literature, I've seen this thing. What about if we combine all of those things together? Mm. They're just really good at doing that. and. Um, and so we we spend a lot of time in what you would call those sorts of thought experiments, innovation ideation, because, for example, we don't have wet labs. So all of the executional part of our discovery effort, we do that in an outsourced kind of way so that our scientists are really freed up to really a- approach the business of discovery in a very, very strategic way. And so through that, they'll say, OK, these are the interesting targets. Um, I'll give you an example. So we have a a preclinical program um, called CLN617, which is an IL-2, IL-12 fusion protein. Um, So we know IL-2 and IL-12 are cytokines that are very potent and have been very efficacious. The problem is when you deliver them systemically, they cause a lot of toxicity. Mm -hmm. And so they've not really been that successful in the clinic. Well, uh, our team saw some science where there was one of those cytokines, and they said, well, what if we combine two very powerful cytokines, uh, IL-2 and IL-12? They said, well, the thing is, you can't give that systemically because, you know, the toxicity is really bad. Well, what about if we delivered it directly to the tumor? Yeah, we can do that. But then what if it leaks out of the tumor? You're going to cause a systemic toxicity. Well, what if we found a way to keep it in the tumor? so this led to this whole process and they worked with some really excellent researchers at mit who had started thinking about this concept and so then they did they took these two very potent cytokines put them in a fusion protein with a collagen binding domain which basically binds to collagen in the tumor and effectively keeps the cytokines in the tumor so there were like several concepts there Mm -hmm. but you know, they used uh, their thinking to kind of put them all together and say, now, how can we turn this into something that could really benefit patients? And so hopefully that program we're going to take in the clinic next year. so really excited about it. But a whole pipeline is replete with those sorts of examples of identifying the target first and then think of kind of innovative ways to to pull a string of concepts together. Concepts
0: that range from f- physics to engineering to you know sim- right. similar to the way I opened discussing uh, you know your your background in uh, IT and, and science, um, but but that's so that leads to my next question. Uh, also, kind of scrutinizing the modality agnostic approach at this uh, emerging biopharma. Um, if you if your modality agnostic approach results in a situation where you're pursuing the development of multiple modalities, which Colin is. You uh, stress your your requirements for, you know, I, IP talent. Um, you know, it sounds to me like you you outsource quite a bit, uh, but in situations where you don't outsource, you stress your uh, development, manufacturing, infrastructure, wet labs, uh, that kind of thing. Even in the outsource capacity, you potentially stress your, you know, your, your budget to outsource. You probably sure. ought to work with multiple outsourcers who <clears throat> work with these multiple modalities. Um, so, uh, so I guess the, that all encompassing infrastructure, um, as opposed to, uh, a few weeks ago, we had, uh, you know, the brothers, Ian and Eugene Chan from ABPRO on, it's all they do is build antibodies, you know, that, that, that's it. And they do a damn good job of it. Um, so I say, that's all they do. They're focused on it. I don't mean that's all they sure. do. Like, you know, <laughs> um, you guys are, you guys are not that. So I'm just curious. I I, I want to dig yep. in a little bit into yep. how, Nadeem uh rationalizes that and how you go about managing uh you know the 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 nimbleness and agility required to pursue all these all these sure. different opportunities.
1: Yeah absolutely. Um, so look first we have a very diverse pipeline of either potential first-in-class or best-in-class assets. So uh, I think it's a very high-quality problem. So that's the first thing I would sure. say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 1st order problem, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the one thing I would say, uh, Matt, is although we are agnostic to modality, our core focus tends to be biologics and small molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, at this point, we're not pursuing complex modalities like, Cell and gene therapy for example like given the significant capital investment required especially manufacturing and you know cell therapy is an example i know that really well i did that five years before coming here right and so so we we are modality agnostic but we're also very clear about what's off strategy for us and so complex modalities today are off strategy for us and so cell and gene therapy you got you know two thousand companies working with version 1.0 of that right so for us to be competitive in that space would be very, very difficult. So, so our core tends to be small molecules uh, and biologics, um, and so we're very clear about the areas we we pursue. And then the way we operationalize it, I spoke about it a little bit before. You know, we've intentionally built a research model that enables this approach. So, it's about that right balance of outsourcing and in-house expertise. Uh, and and so if I were trying to describe a very simplistic and broad brush approach, we kind of, we tend to keep the in-house expertise as the strategic bit. And then the execution aspects of many things we kind of outsource. Um, so mm-hmm. that's why we don't have wet labs, for example. And then that allows our scientists to really focus on this kind of the strategic aspects of innovation and ideation. As I mentioned, you know, we work with a. A broad network of global CROs for both, you know, research and and late stage development, so that we can kind of execute our programs, you know, from inception all the way through uh, through late stage development. And and in house, we we do have the requisite expertise in chemistry and biology, um, which then allows us to pursue that kind of modality agnostic uh, space, but within the kind of parameters of that framework of, I'd say more simpler, you know, modalities or or mechanisms. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, and this does require intentional and informed approach to the discovery and development uh, progress. Um, And at the same time, you know, I spoke about, you know, products and our scientific approach, but obviously talent capabilities and people are critical in this, right? You don't get, as I always say to my team, you don't get great results with mediocre people, right? And so we've been able to um, you know, one, I inherited great talent and we're able to build upon upon that great talent. So we're not only looking at what we need now, but what do we need two to three years to kind of stay ahead in this space and so that we can scale the organization as we go through the various inflection points in our journey as a young, hungry, lean, really bright uh, workforce of employees.
0: When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's c y t i v a dot com backslash emerging biotech. What what are the I guess major benefits from a business perspective um, of of taking this multimodal approach? I mean, you know, some obvious ones come to mind. Like you hear time and time again, we don't want a lot of shots on goals on goal. We yeah. want to diversify. You know, should should one, you know, modality n- not work or you know. Uh, fe- fell out on a larger scale we want to be able to have have some options um are, are there others i mean are, is there is there from a from an early stay, early to mid-clinical stage you know business standpoint are there other advantages or benefits to the approach you guys take
1: yeah i i would say look i, I certainly agree with what you said about you're not know, being reliant on one specific you know platform or one mm-hmm. target or, or even one asset so it does mean we're not kind of placing our proverbial eggs in one basket as it were right so that the platform fails the whole thing fails um so that does give us a diverse very diversified pipeline um it also gives us strategic optionality moving forward it allows us to spread risk um let me use the example of business development for example you know as we source innovation our multimodal approach gives us a wider aperture aperture of the full universe of opportunities that are out there so you know, we're, we're then fishing in a very, very large pool uh, because, you know, we're not focused on a specific subset of modality. So that's been very helpful as we've brought things into the company as well, in addition to complementing our uh, our internal efforts. And then as a result, we now have a yeah, very broad and deep pipeline across hematology, across solid tumors the range of modalities we just discussed and also at various stages uh of development um and then it also you know uh partners look at that and say okay while you know if it were a single platform there may be only certain folk that are interested in certain things but now you've got like this almost a uh, scientific deli menu if i can describe it that way of a range of different options and opportunities
0: yeah What's been the key uh, over the course of the past year since you, you joined? As I mentioned, you've you've taken the clinical program from one to three, with with more preclinical uh, candidates behind that. What's been the key to that rapid acceleration? I mean, if you kind of nutshell it.
1: Yeah. So so it's been yeah. As I said, as you said, one program in the clinic when I joined, three, and by this time next year, Matt, we're all going well. We'll have five programs in the clinic, which is just really amazing progress and and, yeah. and it's my team that's doing that. So, you know, again, when you have a, a group of really talented, bright, motivated individuals, it certainly makes my life easier. Um, yeah. And I would say, look, within our leadership team, we're focused on three key areas. Um, and so I'm a person who tends to like uh, really drive focus. Um, and so that we're really uh, focusing on those things that are gonna move the needle. Uh, for the company, as opposed to like every possible thing we could work on, right? So, um and the three areas are strategy, culture, and execution. And it's doing them simultaneously. Um, and so, you know, in terms of strategy, we, we've developed now, I would say, a multi year vision of not just the areas we're prioritized, but just as importantly, the things that we're not going to pursue, right? So, we want to play in those places where we have a good chance of winning versus all the things we could do, right? So that's important. Um, you know, strategy is about resource allocation also. Um, and, you know, often you find strategy falls down when you aren't lining up the resource allocation with your chosen strategy. So we, we're we very disciplined at that. So resource allocation um, and then capability building too. As I mentioned to you, you know, we in, we've got things we do internally and then we outsource some things you know as you scale a company then you not need to start thinking about okay what are some of the internal capabilities that i now need to develop and the muscle i need to build that perhaps i was outsourcing before so we are really focused on what are the key capabilities we need to build internally to take our company uh, to the next level and we've done that over the past year. And we can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and as I said, you know, a lot of things do come back to people. We've been very fortunate to attract, you know, really key talent um, in what started out at the beginning of the year is very, very tough labour market in the sense that you know people were getting three, four, five offers from different companies, right? And so we're very fortunate that we were able to execute really well then, draw in some really, really uh, key talent. Uh, and then part of strategy is also your capital allocation, and where are you focusing your efforts on things that are going to move move the the needle? Um, you know, we spoke a little bit about this before. Yeah, being bold and taking calculated risks is really important as well. Uh, and with the knowledge that not all your bets are going to win, so I'll give you a very recent example of that. So one of our programs, CLN six one nine, is a is currently in in the clinic is one of the three that's currently in the clinic. And it's a monoclonal antibody that targets this very unique pathway called the MiC a MiC b pathway. Um, And essentially what it does is cancer cells find a way to hide from the immune system. Um, With this antibody we make the tumour cells visible again to the immune system so that NK cells and subsets of T cells can come in and destroy those tumour cells. Well, this is a programme that has the potential to work across a range of cancers because the target, McA McB, is expressed across a range of cancers, hematology, solid tumours. Um, now, uh, it was one we insourced, um, but um, we only owned about 55% of it. So we have this really promising therapy. It's currently in the clinic in phase one. We don't yet know if it's going to work or not. But as we kind of were doing, uh, you know, series of financing with our investment partners, I said to the team, "Look, on the one hand, we're saying this is really important, and on the other side, we own fifty-five percent of it. So yeah, there's opportunity, right, to deploy capital. And so yeah, I'm fortunate in discussions with the uh, the investors." Um, Essentially, we bought them out and we took our ownership from 55% now to over 90%. Essentially, we own the asset. Now, we don't know if it's going to work, but it was a risk worth taking uh, for an important program. And so, you know, that was a very recent example kind of taking these bold risks. um, And that's part of, you know, as I described, you know, thinking about our strategy. Um, In terms of culture, um, you know, we've worked really hard on culture. And w- one of the things that's very important to me is empowering the organization and allowing people to fully unlock their potential, be the best of themselves when they come to the office or whether they're you know working remotely. And so, um, yeah, early on we developed uh, a culture committee with you know folk across the organization that were not C-suite people, so that we could kind of you know build this thing ground up. And you know that team within. Just a few short weeks kind of develops the values for our organization that you can now see on our website. Um, they're driving the culture of the company. And so this is kind of like the really cool stuff that, you know, you really miss out if you leave it behind, or if you say, no, no, I'm gonna focus on strategy first, right? And so, so that was strategy, there was culture, and then on the execution side of things, um, you know, you'll often hear uh, uh hear my team talk about how I, how I really uh urge this this kind of sense of urgency talking about speed of execution and you know that's an area where I feel we can move faster than some of the larger organizations because we don't have the bureaucracy the you know layers and layers of process and decision making um and so uh, my team really thinks about speed of execution, how so, you know, we spoke about one program in the clinic that becomes three programs in the clinic that becomes five programs in the clinic and hopefully regulatory approvals after that. And so speed of execution is really, really important to us. Obviously, you know, it has to be high quality, but that's uh, that's been important to to our team. Um, and, you know, it's it, as I said before, it's it's a lean, hungry motivated and highly productive organization, Matt. There's very few companies that are able to bring five uh, you know, programs into the clinic with under a hundred people. Um, and so, you know, the work, the work my team is doing is is making a big difference.
0: At what point do you, uh, so you just mentioned you have uh, under a hundred people now, which is, which is double, double what it was a year ago, roughly. Yeah. Right. Yep. At, at what point do you, uh, do you, I guess anticipate the challenge, dealing with the challenge of maintaining your this, this limited bureaucracy management style as the company grows. So, I mean, you, you've you've doubled in, in workforce. You've moved to a new new facility to accommodate that workforce. Um, you know, expanding the clinical programs. I made the joke earlier about you know sort of uh, it would be cool to be a fly on the wall you know in uh in in a scientist's office when when they're you know talking about this new Nadima med guy who's coming in to lead the company from from Big Pharma um and and you you know rightfully so I mean you you've you' you've, you've proven that that's you know that, that that you kind of um turn that uh assumption on its ear with your with your management style uh but at some point you know at some point, there could be some risk in the 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 uh, nimble agility hunger, you know, limited bureaucracy approach uh, as the company grows. What do you, do you think about that? Do you grow concerned about it? Do you have a plan? <laughs> I guess as you move <laughs> down, down the line.
1: Yeah. Look, I th- I would say, um, you know, so so let me just say in in 2022 as you said we doubled our workforce so now we're um, just under 70 employees mm-hmm. uh, but with a plan to continue growing as our pipeline advances uh, obviously we want to do that in a fiscally prudent way and we will so for me the key thing is making sure you invest uh, the right amount at the right time uh, you know so that you're not overbuilding too early for example right we've all, mm-hmm. we've all seen examples of organization waking up one day and said, oh my gosh, where did all these people come from, right? That's not where I want to put my team and my people in, right? And so we try to be very smart about the right investment at the right time. Look, The other thing I would say is, you know, as you grow as an organization, you do need to ensure that your organization and your processes are scalable. But I think we can do that in a, in a lean way that continues to allow us to keep our, I'd say, innovative edge and entrepreneurial spirit. Right. So it's kind of getting the the, the balance right. Um, you know, patients shouldn't be waiting for us to sort out our internal issues. Right. They're waiting for the next treatment that we're going to deliver. Hopefully, that's going to make a big impact. Yeah. Um, and so again, I'd say coming back to some of the earlier themes I mentioned, you know, speed of execution is really important. And I think we do have a. Uh, an advantage there as a smaller company to be able to, you know, move this uh, speedboat much quicker than the larger oil tanker. If I can describe it in that way, right? So that that's really important. Um, and you know, in that theme of a process and bureaucracy, look. Um, in all organizations Matt nobody wakes up and says how can I make my company more bureaucratic today right yeah <laughs> but it creeps up on you over the, over time if you don't watch it and so yeah, it creeps
0: up on you, but, you know I, I, you know sort of a, as a matter of necessity right I mean you know yeah. you, you know as, 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 as you grow you can't uh, you can't <laughs> let the leash go too long right so exactly
1: and and that's why we' we really focus on you know I spoke about speed of execution, rapid decision making is really important so not introducing too many layers or too many committees that would prevent us from making decisions um mm-hmm. but you know i tell some of my former uh colleagues who are, you know i still keep in touch with you know my biggest uh issue is that when we decide on a topic you know should we execute it today or tomorrow and not the so many other committees that i need to go to right and so yeah. I think we're able to do that, but I do think the trick is making sure that you know both your organization and your processes are scalable as you grow, so for me, it's a matter of just enough process but not too much process that kind of you know stifles innovation and the creative environment that our you know our scientists and clinicians need to really bring forward great science and great medicines,
0: yeah, yeah, good deal um. I want to I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about uh, cash and cash management. You mentioned uh, earlier on in the conversation that one of the criteria you were looking for when you pursued opportunities or, or investigated opportunities with uh, emerging biotech was a strong cash position. And you know, a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago, when you when you joined, that was probably easier to do than it is today. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> right 12 months later find a company that's got a strong cash position and now colin finds itself in in and you know pretty pretty solid footing especially relative to an industry that's been suffering through restricted capital markets for the past 12 plus months um so give us some insight into that what's uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm assuming that some of the seeds of that success were planted prior to your arrival but you've yeah. uh, you know added to and, and and maintained that um you know and on the flip side of that a strong cash position. I you you know six six hundred and fifty six million dollars in cash and investments as of Q two of of twenty twenty two. Good place to be. Can also be a dangerous place to be. You know, uh, good cash positions in in large part. I don't want to get too philosophical, but uh, are, are part of the reason that we're in the the struggle that we're in now. Right, <laughs> less discernment on the on the runway and and burn rate. Um, so give me give me let, let let's take that in two parts. One. Give me some insight into how Colin found itself in a strong cash position, uh in, in an otherwise weak uh industry, uh, I guess environment right now for for cash positions. And then two, what are your what's what's your intention to to manage that, you know, to make sure that uh that sure. things don't things don't get a little bit too squirrely like uh they did for so many?
1: Sure. Yeah, look, I would say, Matt, that um, you know, a lot of this credit goes to um um, you know, my predecessor and, and his team, right? So, um, especially our CFO, Jeff Trigilio, uh, um, You know, the company, again, before my time, as they thought about IPO and going public, you know, they moved really quickly um, during pretty strong financing conditions and window to, in late 2020, to secure over $400 million through both crossover IPO financing. Um, and they really brought in high quality specialists and also long only investors. So they knew these were people were going to stay with the company for a while. Right. So that was important. So when I walked in through the door, it was around you know 400 million ish or so. So that was number one. That was important. Um, secondly, you know, for our lead compounds, I mean, we did a, we did a deal with Taiho, uh, which yeah, brought in, um Another almost three hundred million dollars of non-dilutive capital at a time when things were you know, continuing to start starting to, to get tough. So that was really important for the company as well, uh, and it was a great financial and strategic deal for us for for various reasons. You know, Taiho um, is a great partner. They specialize in you know small uh, small molecule targeted oncology therapy. So this was firmly um, in their wheelhouse. Um, But in addition to the upfront cash, um, you know, we have um, uh, uh, $130 million uh, payable uh, on U.S. regulatory approvals for frontline and second-line Exxon 20 non-small-cell lung cancers, which are kind of core indications for the brand. Uh, And then just as importantly uh, in the future... Um, we get to participate in the upside commercial potential through this uh, 50-50 profit share in the U.S., arguably you know, the most important oncology market in the world, uh, with a co-promotion option um, that allows us to kind of deliver on our ambition in the future of you know um, becoming a commercial-stage biotech company. So it offers a very cost-effective and efficient way of building out uh, an infrastructure in the future. So, um, So um you know cash in hand when i came in um yeah you know, through work of the team kind of built that position through our partnership with taiho and then to come to the second part of your question right this is um uh, making sure that we um are smart about our cash runway and burn rate right so although sure, yeah, you know, just
0: Responsibility, if you will. Exactly. So, you know,
1: you mentioned over 650 million. Well, after Q3, that became just over 600 million, right? And so, when you're in clinical stage, right, cash burns quickly. And so, what we're doing is making sure that we're putting that cash to really good use, right? So, the example I gave you was, you know, the 619 program where we upped our ownership for an in house program, right, that we brought in house from 54% to 90 plus percent now. You know, if that pops in the clinic, there's a lot of opportunity there, right? So that was cash well spent. Um, You know, we did the deal, as I mentioned, with Taiho, but we're also looking at, um, you know, two other areas. One, how do we accelerate and expand our current pipeline and using the capital to do that? So, for example, you know, we're now able to do things more in parallel than sequentially. So, you know, with the 619 program, again, which is in the clinic now in phase one, we're um, we're exploring both monotherapy and combination therapy at the same time which typically would have been more of a sequential process so we mm-hmm. can do that mm-hmm. um we also are continuing to look at opportunities uh you know in the external environments through business development so if there's a right opportunity out there at the right price um you know um, we're open for business uh, it's got to be the right fit we're not going to do to your point we're not going to do a deal just because we have cash So we continue to think about what's the best way to deploy capital, but also make sure we have the cash runway to prosecute what we have um, currently. So we're very vigilant about that and continue to have that as a priority. But we don't want to bury our heads in the sand at the same time and, you know, not aggressively pursue things and accelerate things that we uh, we can deploy the capital to do.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, the the deal um the deal with Taiho is, is interesting to me and, and I'd like to you know not necessarily dig uh too much deeper into the the mechanics of that deal. You did a good job uh lining that up. Um but I know that I, I know that and has, you know, uh fully integrated commercial biopharma uh uh vision, right? Like that's that's the that's the the goal. Um and in the meantime uh, there, there's partnering opportunities. There will be opportunities to, to buy and sell assets. There will be. And I, and I know that's, that's part of that agility, right? Part of the, the nimbleness. What's your philosophy uh, on, on that? Like, what's your, you know, what, what, is, I guess, what, what's your mindset on between now and the day, whenever that may come that, um, that calling in, declares itself, uh, you know, a fully integrated, uh, commercial stage biotech company. Between now and that day, what, what are you willing to do and not willing to do in terms of the you know the the, the industry shuffle, <laughs> right? Like the, sure. the the buy sell partner collaborate license, sure. uh, all those myriad uh, combinations. What do you what do sure. you what are you willing to do and what are you not willing to do?
1: Sure. Yeah. Look, first I would say all companies start from somewhere, right? <laughs> they start from day zero, right? And some of the most Successful biotech companies have gone through that process, right?
0: Yeah, um, and yeah. So,
1: so, so that's, that's part of
0: the. That's part of the. And I'm I'm asking the question because I I I, I like I, I think about that uh, all those opportunities and and the management of those as a- exciting and and risky and scary and you know part of. Yep. not Nadim Ahmad's job. So I, I don't, I don't ask it in a way that's to say like, well, if you're going to be partnering and buying and sure. selling assets, you're taking yep. steps backward on your, you know, yep. vision to, to be fully yep. integrated commercial stage. I'm I'm just curious, like, sure. I'm, I just want to learn. I just want to learn about like what you, yeah. what your mindset is going into it.
1: Of yeah. Look, I, I think for us, you know, I spoke about our core values earlier on, right? Collaboration is one of our core values, both internally and externally, and it's it's key to our success. Mm-hmm. Um, and then bringing that back to the pipeline, you know, the way we we review the strategic options for all of our assets on a case by case basis, and that's important to remember. So the fact that we did a transaction and partnered with uh, Ib is not a read through to what we will do with the rest of our pipeline, right? It's a case by case basis specifically it was it learning it just made sense that when we did the um the strategic and financial analysis partnering uh ended up being the best opportunity for that specific asset uh but you know if with the rest of our partner there will certainly Matt, be uh be uh assets where we will want to go it alone and and take it all the way through ourselves because we believe that that's the best way to drive value uh, most importantly for patients first but then also for our shareholders so that bit um uh, doesn't scare us and you know part of my personal experience i've been fortunate enough to have been able to launch a lot of products so and mm-hmm. take them over the to finish line so you know have a good feeling of what that looks like um and so ultimately our view is, you know, for the right assets, the best way to drive value is to go it alone and do it yourself and become a fully integrated uh, commercial-stated biotech company. And that's what our ultimate ambition is. But we will look at, to your point, assets on a case-by-case basis. And there may be assets in the future where it does make sense to partner. Uh, but, you know, our overall philosophy is the go-it-alone approach.
0: Yeah. And especially if those opportunities, potential opportunities uh, to to partner, you um can can be rationalized as a stepping stone towards that greater vision right. i mean of course yep. right yep.
1: yeah and look the, uh, we spoke about i mean the tayo collaboration is a great example where we have a co-commercialization option in the us so yeah. there you can imagine that you know at that point in time we could effectively and efficiently build a u.s commercial infrastructure that could be used to both commercialize zip alert and it but also you know other products in our pipeline and it it's a really, uh, a really efficient way to do it. Right. A a, a great strategic option for us in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're running short on time I I'm, I'm grateful by the way, for the time you've given me. Um, and I, and I know I'm pushing the limits. Uh, what have I not asked you? What have, what did I gloss over that you think is important to the story that if I were a better interviewer, I would have, would have asked you.
1: Yeah, hey, look, I, I think you are a good interviewer, Matt. Um, you know, we spoke a little bit about uh, your prior experiences, and I think part of my journey has taught me, um, you know, what are the things that I've learned that I would want to continue moving forward uh, and mm-hmm. adapting, um, and then what are the things I've learned that perhaps I wouldn't want to continue moving forward a- a- and adapting as I think about, you know, colon oncology specifically, right? So. You know, I think the things that um, I would say are really, really important are, you know, I, I call I call it uh, professionalizing without becoming bureaucratic, and we spoke a little bit about that, right? And so that for me are things like you know scalability. It's the mm-hmm. discipline of using analytics and data to make well-informed decisions, you know, versus kind of you know winging it, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, you also want to make sure that you are still creating that environment that drives innovation, drives agility, the speed of execution to be able to, to do things. Um, so in, for me, it's almost taking the best of my learnings that I've experienced to make sure that, you know, we do apply discipline, rigor, professionalism to the scale up of the organization. Um but don't introduce so much, in you know, a process and bureaucracy that it kind of stifles some of the great things that Cullinan had from day one before I arrived as we kind of continue to, to move that forward. And it's far easier said than done. But, um, you know, I'm having a fabulous time going through that journey with with a great set of people and a leadership team at Covenant Oncology. So I think that's been a, a great learning and uh, one that I can I can apply because I've had that experience in the past.
0: Yeah, and I can I can I can vouch for that. Uh, I, I I'll tell you, Nadim. I I started kind of following you and paying attention to what you're doing on 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 social, and uh, the authenticity is is clear. You can you can see when the authenticity is is feigned or forced. It's not with you, Nadim. I I I genuinely appreciate it about you. So when you say those words, I I take them at face value.
1: I appreciate that. Thanks, Matt.
0: Yeah. And I wish you guys the best. I, I'd like to have you back on sometime uh, not too far down the road to talk more specifically about some of your candidates and the clinical progress there as that clinical progress unfolds. Uh, but but for now, I think this has been a valuable conversation, and I, I appreciate you sharing some of the insight into your new role there. Congratulations on that, your management style and where you're taking the company.
1: I appreciate that. Matt. Look, 2022 was a fabulous year of progress for the company. Um, and 2023 is going to be even bigger and better. And uh, I'm just very fortunate to have a great team to work with.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to catch up on 2023 at some point. We'll give it a couple quarters, see how progress unfolds, and we'll, sure. we'll get you back on the show.
1: Great. Sounds great. Appreciate thank it, Matt. Thanks so much. Thank you,
0: Nadim. So that's on Oncology President and CEO, Nadim Ahmed. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online with the support of Cytiva, which demonstrates its support to new and emerging biopharma companies at com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with biopharma leaders like Nadine, subscribe to the business of biotech podcast, sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Also be sure to leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening.